0: This episode is brought to you by MySymbol TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. For the first time ever, you can swap out the number to create a uniquely designed MySymbol TP5 or TP5X. Visit TaylorMadeGolf.com to design yours today and experience this revolution in golf ball personalization. A Basque athlete making history on golf's biggest stage. John Rahm becoming the fourth Masters champion from Spain with his win at Augusta National this past week. The first thing I want to talk about here is the idea of the Indo-European. This was a new concept to me as of maybe a month ago, but if you're listening to this podcast, just by the odds there is a decent chance that you are descended from Indo-European people. I am some combination of Irish, Scottish, French, German, who knows what else. And if you have any European heritage, you're in the same boat. These are people who started out in the Central Asian steppes. And what we call the Indo-European migration is this movement of people starting in about 4000 BCE, that's about 6000 years ago. And I want you to picture it as a sort of wave. It starts there, and by the way, historians and archaeologists, they trace this a few ways. Language and DNA are the really big ones today. But imagine these people as a wave that spreads outward in every direction. They separate into various tribes. They're all related, but they separate. Some go to India. Some go to the Middle East. The Persians and their great empires are descended from this group. They go a little bit to Northern Africa, and they go to Europe. The ones that end up in Europe are all the big names, right, from history. You've got the Germanic peoples, That's everyone from actual Germans to the English to the Vikings. The Celtic people, you can find their genes in Ireland and Scotland today. The Baltics, the Slavics, the Italics. The Italics, the tribe that dominated that group, are the Latins. They become the Roman Empire. But all of these people are related by language and DNA. They fought each other like crazy. For centuries, for millennia, they're still fighting. But another thing they did through some combination of historical power and cunning probably disease too and a little bit of luck, they wiped out everyone who wasn't them. And the people they didn't wipe out, they subjugated and assimilated so completely that there are no traces of their cultures, no language, no customs, nothing. This Indo-European wave absolutely erased everything in its path. And I use that word erase on purpose. We know there were people there before them Those people had kingdoms, they had culture, they had language. They were erased to the point that there is no vestige of any of them who came before the Indo-Europeans. With one exception. And that exception is the Basque people. I'm Shane Ryan, this is Local Knowledge, and this whole thing started for me when I had a thought about John Rahm that came so long after I first heard of him that it was almost embarrassing. It was while I was writing my Ryder Cup book. This was in late 2021, maybe a few months before the Whistling Straits Ryder Cup. John Rom was on my mind, and the thought I had was pretty simple, and it was, you know, wait a second, what kind of name is Rahm for someone from Spain? I am by no means an expert, but I did study Spanish in school. I've been exposed to a lot of different Spanish names. And this one didn't sound like any of the others I'd come across. Yes, his full name is John Rom Rodriguez, Rodriguez being his mother's family name. But in this case, I was right. Turns out the name Rom actually originated in Switzerland. That made a little bit more sense to me. One of his ancestors, who we'll get into later, was this man named Georg Rom Schlatter. He was a Swiss cabinetmaker, born in a town called Halau in Switzerland in 1778. He moved to the Spanish city Bilbao in Basque country. He married a Basque woman. And, you know, to fast forward 200 years later, his great, 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 great grandson is John Rahm from Barica, Spain, the number one golfer in the world. So that's where the name comes from. That's how they got to Spain. Barica, his hometown, is near Bilbao. It's on the north coast of Spain on the Bay of Biscay. This is about 40 miles east of where Sevi Ballesteros grew up, if you listened to that podcast about a month ago. However, Sevi is not Basque. Note that. Barrica is described in one article as a land of cliffs and wild beaches. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, go watch the scene where Daenerys Targaryen lands on Westeros for the first time. That's Barrica. And by the way, as a little taste for what's coming, you can do an exercise. Go to Wikipedia and see where it says John Rom was born. You'll find the town Barrica, but Barica is spelled with a C. That's the Spanish spelling. Now go on his PGA Tour profile, see what that says. What you're going to find there is the town Berica with a K. That's the Basque spelling. And what I'd say to you is that it's no accident that when it's something John Rahm has control over, like the PGA Tour site, they're gonna use the Basque spelling. Just flag that for now. But what caught my eye when I first learned about that Swiss heritage and a little about his background, and what I wanted to ask Rom about the next time I had a chance to in a press conference, this is back in 2021, was that Basque heritage because I knew a little, Not much, but I knew a little about the people in the region. But I knew enough to know that they are some of the most fascinating people in world history. And I think you're going to see that's not an exaggeration, not in the least. And the premise of the theme of this podcast today is, okay, John Rahm is the best golfer in the world right now. He's the master's champion. My opinion, he's also one of the most intelligent and history-conscious players that I've run into. And if you want to understand this guy, his values, what makes him tick you're going to have to understand the Basque people. And that's not easy for an American. You may have never heard of the Basque country. Even if you have, it's a lot of history for a foreigner to digest in what, you know, a 40-minute podcast or whatever we're doing today. But maybe, if nothing else, this will be a window into the mind and character of a guy who we are going to be seeing in the golf world for a very long time. So, the logical question is, who are these Basques? These holdovers from a time before the Indo-Europeans And the answer is, well, it's complicated. And actually that particular question of who is a Basque is pretty incendiary and controversial. And the answer, whatever your answer is, has a lot of historical implications. So it's not a question you take lightly. And on that note, there's a point I wanna make up top here, which is that I am very much an amateur when it comes to all this stuff. I'm gonna have to speak broadly or we'd never get through it all. Probably gonna mispronounce my share of Basque words. And I don't basically want to represent myself as more of an expert than I really am. I'm an American who has read a few books. That's it. So there's your disclaimer. Keep it in mind when we talk about the history here. In general, we can understand Basque Country to be seven provinces. Four of them are in the northeast of Spain. Three are in France. You know, that territory doesn't respect national borders. In fact, there is a Basque nationalist slogan, which you can still see in graffiti in some places, which says four plus three equals one. The idea that the four Spanish provinces plus the three French one, that equals the one Basque homeland. That word homeland is important because this isn't like me being from New York. This is the place they call Euskal Herria. It's their nation, even if nobody else recognizes it. And that nation in 2023 is about the size of the state of New Hampshire. A bit smaller, in fact. So... You're starting to see there is a distinct identity here, a sense of being their own people in their own country, even as they live in the midst of these two other, obviously very powerful, very massive countries. John Rom in a press conference once, said that he felt accepted when he played in Ireland because he thought the Irish people and the Basque people were very similar. And the Irish independence movement is a pretty good point of comparison here, just because it's probably a lot more well-known. Now, the Irish, they have their own islands, so you get where the history comes from. But what about the Basque? They're kind of in the middle of two countries. You know, Mark Kurlansky, in his excellent book, The Basque History of the World, says that this land, quote, "...looks too rugged to be France and too green to be Spain." You know, you would say, they're not an island. How are they distinct? And what I would say to you is that they are an island in more ways than you can imagine. Not the least of which is that they seem to be the very last of their line a strange historical anomaly, a pre-Indo-European holdout from a very, very ancient time. Their language, which they call Euskera, I hope I did that justice, I listened to a couple YouTube videos, I probably still mangled it, we call it Basque, is like nothing that exists in Europe or the world. It is almost certainly the oldest living European language by far, and it's what linguists call an agglutinating language. What that means is that complex ideas are formed by adding suffix after suffix to root words, so you can get these crazy long words to express an idea. But at heart, there are only about 200,000 words in Euskera. By comparison, in the Oxford English Dictionary, there are 60 million words. Euskera is called a language isolate, a.k.a. an orphan language. Almost every language in the world We can trace its origins, its similarities to other languages. Basque stands entirely alone. Whatever it was related to is gone. I don't know if you watched the Masters opening ceremonies this past April, but Gary Player, when he came out to hit his tee shot, he jogged down the steps, age 87. He faced the crowd, he threw his hands up triumphantly, and he said, All my friends are dead. When it comes to the Basque people, all their friends are dead. And they have been for a very long time. These other pre-Indo-European tribes who existed all over the continent, they've been dead at least since we've had written accounts from the Romans. Only the Bas survived. And you might ask, how do we know this? Well, it was always theorized because of the strangeness of the language. And once DNA evidence came out, it confirmed it. They have a very high incidence of type O blood in their population. There's also something called the RH factor, Basques have more Rh-negative people than anywhere else in Europe. And there's a distinct physical type. Some scientists believe they might even be descended from Cro-Magnon populations. You know, you always kind of walk on eggshells when you start grouping people by physical traits, but I think I'm on safe ground when I quote Kurlansky, who writes that, There is a Basque with a long, straight nose, thick eyebrows, strong chin, and long earlobes. Even today, sitting in a bar in a mountainous river valley town like Tolosa. Watching men play moose, the popular card game, one can see a similarity in the faces despite considerable intermarriage, end quote. So again, we ask, who are these people and how did they possibly survive? That's the central romance and the central mystery of the Basque people. What I think makes them so interesting to the point that we're turning a golf podcast into a history lesson in a way that I'm sure my editor is going, what's happening? What are we doing here? But... interesting, isn't it? And let's put it plainly. For millennia, people have been trying to kill the bass, to erase their culture, at best to conquer them by assimilation. Continues to the present day. The last dictator of Spain, Franco, made their language illegal. And those are the nicer influences, right? Imagine thousands of years ago when all across the world, the rule, the only rule, was that if you're weaker than your neighbor, you get slaughtered. You become slaves. You get erased from the historical ledger and forgotten. No mercy. No mercy. End of story. Literally, that's the end of the story. That's the end of your whole story. That's what happened to everyone in Europe that wasn't Indo-European. Happened to some of the Indo-Europeans too. As Kurlansky wrote, and I thought he put it perfectly, the singular remarkable fact about the Basques is that they still exist. And what I would add to that is they don't just exist. They have thrived. And they've thrived in a very crowded human marketplace. Sometimes you hear stories about, you know, a small tribe in the Amazon rainforest that is untouched by the modern world. They've never seen anybody outside themselves. Or the North Sentinelese in the Indian Ocean. Maybe you remember that story where they killed some foolish missionary who tried to visit them. There are people in the world who are protected by their isolation. Not the Basques. They live in France and Spain. These are big modern countries. Steeped in business, steeped in warfare, and no matter what happens to the bass, no matter how they suffer, and boy do they suffer, no matter how they're compromised or punished, they don't go away. TaylorMade has put a whole new spin on personalization. Unleash your unique style on the golf course with TP5 and TP5X MySymbol. My symbol allows you to personalize your golf ball more than ever. Now you can make the most complete tour ball in golf completely your own by personalizing colors, symbols, logos, and numbers with over 100 stock symbols to choose from. You can create a golf ball that truly reflects your personality. Whether you want to replace your number with a symbol or place it on the side, the possibilities are endless. Visit TaylorMadeGolf.com to design yours today and experience this revolution in golf ball personalization. Now, let's put this a little bit in context because they are part of the modern world. It's not like the Basque people today are still of pure blood or anything like that. There's been plenty of immigration, intermarriage for thousands of years. John Rahm would be a great example of this. He is culturally very proud to be a Basque, but he's descended on his father's line from Swiss people. And if you go back in his genealogy, there are some men and women who are Spanish who moved to the Basque territory but weren't born there. So if you dug into his DNA, who knows how much similarity he actually bears to the people who would have lived there you know, 3,000 years ago. But the point is, being Basque is incredibly meaningful to him. And that's a sign of the strength of that heritage, that even someone like Ram, who is a product of a few different parts of Europe, adheres strongly to this identity. I heard a song on YouTube this woman was singing, talked about the language, Euskera, the Basque language, and she said,
1: Euskera
0: is not my mother, but I am her daughter. And I think that concept is pretty common. I contacted Ram's team while researching this podcast. I didn't think for a second I'd get any time with him. I just won the Masters after all, but I thought, why not try? One of his managers wrote back, basically saying, there's been so much done on this, we're going to pass. Now, that was interesting to me because, I don't know, maybe you can Google better than I can, but I had not found very much at all in English-speaking media about Rom and his Basque heritage. In fact, almost nothing. I pressed the agent a little bit. I said, you know, can you send me some of this stuff? Because I can't find it. He wrote back, even the PGA Tour filmed something about it. So I found that video. It was a good video, all about Rom's childhood, but you know what word was not uttered one time? The word Basque. Luckily, I had the opportunity to ask Rom a question about it at the Tour Championship back in 2021. This is again when I just discovered that he was Basque, and basically the question was, explain to me, somebody who is almost totally ignorant about your culture, what does it mean to you? And I, I wouldn't say he was annoyed at the question, that's way too strong. In fact, he answered it very sincerely. But there was maybe a sense of, okay, here we go, this again, which hinted at the idea that, you know, even though there's not much in English about it, this is probably something he's had to answer quite a bit in his home country. It might be kind of a big deal there. Again, the closest comparison in golf might be to Rory McElroy, who will absolutely not talk about anything political when it comes to Northern Ireland. It's too complex, too incendiary, too many people to piss off, basically, In the same way, the Basques had their own independence movement that veered into terrorism in recent history. We'll get into that. But, to Rom's credit, even if he wasn't thrilled with the question, he did answer it well. This is a long quote from him, but it's coming from the actual source, and I think it's worth listening to at length. So here's what Rom said.
2: Oh, God, I feel like... God, I don't want to give a history lesson. Uh, Listen, the Basque country, it's... um... i don't know how to put the word let's say state in spain that it's a little different to the rest you know we have our own language our own traditions and even in certain tax laws are a little bit different right so um even though spain is very diverse there is a difference between basque and spanish people now historically uh there has been some let's say uh friction between each other, Uh, at one point, the Basque people had a terrorist team that did not do such good things in consequence of the dictatorship that wanted to completely abolish anything that was Basque. I mean, it was a fascist movement. It happened all over the country, but... um, It's tough because I'm not, for those who know about the history, I'm not anti-Spanish. Obviously, I'm Basque as much as I'm Spanish. I've represented Spain all over the world. And it's unfortunate the fact that I have to keep saying that every time something like this comes up, but... Basque people are very hard headed shocking, very loyal, and very passionate and that's kind of something that really dis- you know describes me really really well um and I'm proud to be where I'm from, you know I feel like it's a sense of family that is very unique, and I'm proud to be a little bit different in that sense growing up in the Basque culture and basque um basque language and 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 a bit of everything right so um it's it's a sense of pride more than anything, you know. It's uh, I get to call myself Basque, which is a cool thing, and, and I love it.
0: There's a lot to unpack there, and unpack it we will. But in terms of the pride, you don't have to look any further than the names of his children. Rom moved to the U.S. to go to college. Met his wife there, an American wife. He's been here ever since. But his two sons are named Kipa and Aniko. These are traditional Basque names. And what he said about his first son was, she, she being his wife, Kelly Cahill, agreed to honor my heritage that way. We just had to find one that she could pronounce. You do not need to question this guy's bona fides. Rom speaks Euskara. He studied the language at a special school called an Iskatola, in a town near Barica named Sopolina. In the 90s, when Ram was young, his father Adorta was a town counselor for the Partido Nacionalista Vasco, that's the Basque Nationalist Party. His grandfather, Sabine Ram, was a high-level administrator for Athletic Bilbao. That's the top-tier Spanish soccer club that maintains a policy of only having players who are either Basque or raised in Basque country. And Ram actually carries uh, the captain's armband Sabine gave him to every golf tournament he travels to. So, this person may be a product of the European melting pot. He's got some Swiss, some Spanish, some Basque, but make no mistake, in his heart and his mind, he is pure Basque. It is estimated that about 751,000 Basque speakers exist in the world. It's considered a vulnerable language, but then again, it's hard to think of a time when it wasn't vulnerable. And I like the quote from Kurlansky at the end of his first chapter when he said, quote, There may not be a France or a Spain in 1,000 years or even 500 years, but there will still be Basques. End quote. You can go too far with this kind of thing, but if you want to look at the competitive toughness, that defines Rom, the way he soldiered through the bad side of the draw at the Masters and still won the thing when nobody else from his side was even remotely close. Maybe you can look at the Basque culture as at least part of the explanation. Or how about the way he thrived despite being born with a clubbed foot? Or how he held on to the strange mechanics of his swing when everybody was telling him he was wrong, he got a change? Maybe a little historical stubbornness doesn't hurt, When you find yourself needing that kind of resilience. TaylorMade has put a whole new spin on personalization. Unleash your unique style on the golf course with TP5 and TP5X MySymbol. MySymbol allows you to personalize your golf ball more than ever. Now you can make the most complete tour ball in golf completely your own by personalizing colors, symbols, logos, and numbers. With over 100 stock symbols to choose from, you can create a golf ball that truly reflects your personality. Whether you want to replace your number with a symbol or place it on the side, the possibilities are endless. Visit TaylorMadeGolf.com to design yours today and experience this revolution in golf ball personalization. In terms of the sources that were very helpful in putting together this podcast, I want to single out a man named Javier Melendez. He is a genealogist from Bilbao, which is the biggest city in Basque Country we've talked about. It's almost a million people there, right on the north coast. He is a John Rom fan, and when he read a story where Rom's grandfather was interviewed saying they didn't really know where they came from, they suspected maybe France, this man, Javier Melendez, took it on himself to do the research and figured out the Swiss connection we talked about, and actually helped trace the family back a few generations on the Swiss side, too. I read his name in some Spanish-language articles and newspapers like El Mundo and El Español. I found him on Twitter. Had no idea if he even spoke English. I speak poor Spanish. Whatever I can remember from high school, which isn't much. But it ended up that he was good enough in English that it sparked this incredibly fruitful email correspondence that taught me so much about Ram's background. And I couldn't be more grateful to Mr. Melendez for that effort. I also mentioned Mark Kurlansky's book, The Basque History of the World. It is a tremendous book, thorough, but completely entertaining. If you're at all intrigued by Basque history, it's very good. I recommend it. And finally, my friend Ria Ali recommended the novel Patria. That's Homeland in English. This is a fictional treatment, but it's all about the modern Basque separatist movement, the, the group called Ada, which we'll get into later, And like a lot of great novels, it can say so much about a time and place, even though it's made up. It's fiction. You know, your mileage may vary, but it was the kind of book for me that kept me up reading until the very early hours for a couple nights until I was finished. So, how do you distill all this Basque history into a few minutes? First thing you have to acknowledge, as Kurlansky wrote, is that the Basque history is older than the history of France, older than the history of Spain, but we depend for our history today on written language and the Basques didn't have their own written language before the Romans came, which means we don't know almost anything about them prior to that Roman arrival in about 218 BCE. And even then, the Basques don't really get a mention for about 200 years. There is a strange artifact called the Hand of Irulegi from around 80 BC that seems to have a Basque word printed on it as far as we can tell today. But after that, it is literally 1,000 years before there's any evidence of written Basque language. And even with this artifact, you know, obviously it's using the Latin alphabet. The Basques didn't have their own alphabet. There's a good chance it wasn't even written by a Basque. And again, if we agree with Kurlansky that the central miracle of the Basque people is that they survived, this quote from the historian Louis de Arbitrage in 1896 needs to be our guiding light. He said, quote, This people is perhaps the only one in the world, at the least the only one in Europe, whose origin remains absolutely unknown. It is strange to think that at the end of the 19th century, which has been so fertile on the subject of origins, that these few people still remain a mystery. End quote. Well, if he thought that was strange in 1896, imagine what he would have thought in 2023, when we have DNA, we have blood testing, and linguistics has come even further along, archaeology. And we still don't know. There are a lot of theories out there. Nothing definitive, nothing that isn't controversial, to say the least. I like some of the rogue theories, like they're actually a Jewish tribe from ancient Greece. Or, you know, they're the survivors of Atlantis, things like that. We don't even know if they were a powerful kingdom or not. It's tempting to say yes, you know, they're the ones who survived, they must have been incredibly powerful. But then again, the really powerful empires are the ones that fall, aren't they? Look at the Roman Empire, how many people still speak Latin today? Big empires make big targets. So maybe the bass are just the people who are best at being invisible. And we tell this romantic story about the bass survival in the face of the Indo-Europeans, but make no mistake, it all comes at a very heavy price. Their existence today in Basque Country is not an accident. This is land that is not particularly good for farming. It's mountainous, though in that regard, there is the misconception that they live in the Pyrenees. That's not true. These are much smaller mountains. But it's not very desirable land, because if it was, quite frankly, it would have been taken from them. In fact, the more desirable land was taken from them, repeatedly. Over time, they were forced into a smaller and smaller area, and again, we're speaking broadly here, but the general pattern historically over centuries is that the Basque would falter in the face of these massive and powerful empires from Carthage to Rome to the Muslim Moors to the Spanish kingdom. They'd lose land, they'd lose people, they'd be pushed into the box that we call Basque land today, and you could make them shrink. But if you tried to root them out of there or subject them, they would fight with such ferocity and with such a fanatical devotion to themselves and to their tribe— That it sounds like, I mean, to use a modern comparison, I hope I'm not being too glib here, but it's like the U.S. fighting in Vietnam. You know, you might think you're stronger, you might think you're more powerful. If you fought them in an open field somewhere, it wouldn't be a fair fight, it would be a rout. But this is their land. They fight with a kind of intensity and a endurance and resilience you can't match. And the price of defeating them eventually becomes too great. So, in the case of the Basques, throughout history, there would be these compromises. You know, you can come through our territory, but don't settle here. Don't try to colonize us. And if you do exert some authority, if we have to accept that, well, then we want special treatment. We especially want our own laws. In fact, these ancient laws of the Basques were called the Fueros. And over and over again, you see these different rulers kind of shrug their shoulders, you know, at the height of their empire and say, okay, truce. And the Basques keep their... You wouldn't call it independence quite, you know, they never have their own nation, but they keep a level of autonomy, which is good enough for them. You see this from the first time they were ever conquered. The Celts couldn't do it, but the Romans did. But in order to sort of make sure there were no headaches, no rebellions, they let them have their laws, their language, their culture. Romans basically said, you know, let us pass through when we're going to fight. Don't mess with us and you know maybe give us a few bodies for our army too the bass are good at compromise and they were good at fighting they were valuable mercenaries throughout history and it's worth mentioning too that theirs is not a perfect unity sometimes where the politics get complicated you end up having bass fighting each other in fact that happens more than once the romans were the first ones to build roads to and from bass country The Basques, as we said, became soldiers in their army. They traveled the world. They brought a lot back. But when the Roman Empire fell and the Visigoths took over, they were not going to be so tolerant. They were not so nice. And that forced the Basques to fight. For 250 years, they fought, and they were never conquered. In fact, that era, some people think probably brought them closer together, solidified the sense of a coherent tribe that had to fight hard if they were going to survive. The Basque religion was a pagan one, Originally, and, you know, certain rituals still persist. But at some point during the Muslim occupation of Spain, they finally converted to Catholicism and they became the best Catholics, the most devout. You might remember John Rahm giving the sign of the cross after he won the Masters. This is a critical part of Basque identity. Catholicism is huge all over Spain and, you know, the entire Spanish world. But perhaps the strictest adherents are right there in Basque country. However, this should not be taken to mean they were reliable enemies of the Muslims for Spain. They fought for themselves and their interests, and occasionally they were fierce opponents of Muslim invaders, but other times they'd fight the Spanish or the French. In fact, they managed to deal Charlemagne, his only military defeat, when he had the nerve to sack Pamplona. The Loyola family, who were known as this rich family of mercenaries, they would fight against anyone, including fellow Basques. They produced a son named Inigo Lopez de Oñas. At one point in his life, he was struck in the legs by a cannonball and almost died. But he survived to go to Paris, study religion, and he started something called the Society of Jesus. We know better as the Jesuits. This man was, of course, the man who became Saint Ignatius. So he was the founder of what might be the most hardcore sect of Catholics in existence still today. You know, Kurlansky had a funny quote in his book about the Jesuits. Even Fidel Castro found these guys too dogmatic. And that was a Basque who started that. The Basque society is very communal in style in some ways, and part of that is because they just don't have that much workable land, so they have to share, you know, when when things are good, they've got to share. It also makes them pretty creative and pretty capitalistic in some ways. As time went on, the Basque became great fishermen, great whalers in particular. There is good evidence that they were the second people, Basque whalers, after the Vikings to land ships in North America. Great sailors, too. The first person to actually circumnavigate the globe was Basque. He was on that campaign with Magellan, but Magellan died. This guy made it back to Spain. Industries sprung up in Bilbao. Steel, you know, fishing, trade flourishes through their ports. So you can see the Basque at this point in various ways are starting to make themselves felt on a European or even a global stage. And I'm giving you the bare bones here, but hopefully you get the gist. These people may be an island, but they form bridges all the time. These are not isolated people. After the Reconquista, which is when Spain turned the Muslims back in the late 1400s, very quickly, the Spanish do the same thing that other empires have done, which is to give the Basques a degree of self-rule to avoid trouble. They give them some tax exemptions with the major caveat that the provinces that are Basque within Spain are still part of Spain. and In fact, a representative of the king would come each year to a town called Guernica and stand under a massive oak tree to guarantee that the Fueros, these Basque local laws, would continue to be respected by the crown. This goes on, not uninterrupted, with only minor interruptions for centuries, and it's at this point in our story that Rom's Swiss ancestors first come to Bilbao. And again, that man was Georg Rom. They called him Jorge in Spain. He was a cabinet maker, part of the large groups of people who were coming into Bilbao and into Basque Country as that economy flourished. He married a Basque woman in 1821. And at some point he had this dispute, which is, you know, typically Basque in nature, where his landlord, the person he was renting from, decided basically this guy didn't want to rent to a foreigner anymore, like Rom, to an outsider. And the court seemed to have upheld this. They kicked him out. So at some point, he was forced to go back to Switzerland with his Basque wife. And he might have had it easy. His partner, who was also a Swiss cabinet maker, at one point, he had to present papers about the purity of his blood, or they were going to kick him out. So there's some degree of xenophobia, which is no surprise with a group of people who are you know, fairly insular historically, and have good reason to mistrust outsiders, right? So, Georg Rahm, back in Switzerland. He had two kids there, came back to Spain at some point, back to Bilbao, and had a son named Segundo. This was his first child born in Basque country, and the first Rom that was born in Spain. Period. There's a story that survives about Segundo. He was a baker. Bakers worked in guilds at that time and they kind of became associated with their town. And he got in an argument with a baker from a different province about who is better, you know, you or us. And apparently it got so heated that Rom said to the man, and this is a direct quote from the accounts, he said, I'm going to break your soul. And then he grabbed him by his apron and bit him in the head. And I, I'm, I can't help but laugh at that description, biting him in the head. I'm sure it wasn't funny for the man who was bit. But Segundo Rom had to pay damages after that, and you wonder, the th- reason I think this story is interesting, is there a little bit of that John Rahm anger we've seen on the chorus, especially when he was younger? You know, maybe we can see that there, back through the years in his ancestor. He did not have a great life, this Segundo. He died at 34 from pulmonary tuberculosis. He lost three of his five children, but one of the ones who survived was Luis Rahm. He was a carpenter. He died in his 40s as well. His son Pablo... Emigrated to America. He was nearly registered to go fight in the First World War. He just missed it because the war ended right when they signed him up. Pablo came back. His son Sabine was born in 1931. As we mentioned, Sabine worked his whole life for Athletic Bilbao. Sabine's son was Adorta, born in 1959. He became a successful businessman in the gasoline and trucking industry. He married Angela, who was not Basque, she was from Madrid. And in 1994, their son, John Rom Rodriguez, was born. Now, I want to go back real quick to the great-grandfather, Pablo, this man who went to America. There is a, surprisingly, or at least it's surprising to me, a positive relationship in many ways between the Basque and the United States. There is a quote in Erlansky's book from a man named Pierre Lantigui, who is the um, you know part of the Basque Academy of Language. And he said, quote, To be a true Basque, three things are required. To have a name which bespeaks Basque origin, to speak the language of the descendants of Aitor, and to have an uncle in America. It's a little bit of a joke from him, but it's one based on truth. And there is this long tradition of Basques who go to America, become rich, come home, so that there's even a Basque word for him. And that word is, you know, as always, pardon the pronunciation here, Amerikanowak, those who return from America. And there are phrases that start in the early 20th century like Americanuac Bizain, which means good, like an American, and Es Americanuac, which means you're no American, which apparently is what you say to someone when you want to call them cheap. So it's interesting that Jean Rahm also followed this path, traveling to America to make his name, to make his money. There's this strange thing that happened after he won the Masters, a mild controversy in Spain where a woman named Lucia Mendez Prada, who is a TV presenter of some sort, in reporting on Rahm's win, she said he was, quote, relatively Spanish, with a kind of tone that sounded to some a little bit critical, a little bit dismissive. And as far as I can tell, the reference there was not to him being Basque, I mean, which if that was the case, she probably gets fired immediately. But it was a reference to the fact that he's in America, married an American wife, makes his life there. He's not living in Barika anymore. And there was instant backlash to this. And I think what's fascinating is that even by insulting Ram on the American front, based on the Basque affinity for America and the history there, she's also insulting him on the Basque front. Because what Ram did, go to America, make your money is a badge of honor. And there's a long-standing tradition of this, not just in golf, but in life, including his own great-grandfather. So, during these two centuries that the Rom name is being established in Spain, they are living through very tumultuous times. The Spanish and the Basques fought Napoleon, there were these two Carlos Wars which often pitted Basque people against each other, and these centuries of conflict peaked in the 1930s with the rise of General Francisco Franco, the man who would become the fascist dictator of Spain for decades. And Franco is one of these slippery guys of history who had a nose for power. He was both insecure and a strong leader at the same time, a brave soldier and a brutal war criminal. But he also had a knack for protecting himself, for making friends, and then losing those friends when they needed to be lost. For example, he very much used the Nazis and the Italians under Mussolini to help him win the Spanish Civil War against the new Spanish Republic, but then managed to become a, quote, non-belligerent and pretty close to neutral during World War II. Some people think he made outrageous demands of Hitler when Hitler said, come on, aren't you going to join the fight? Knowing that Hitler would say no, that he would you know, infuriate him to kind of wriggle out of a potential alliance because Franco, being who he was, he could kind of tell which way the wind was blowing. And meanwhile, he's speaking in back channels of the US and Great Britain while openly, you know, supposedly supporting the Axis powers, but with words only, and the long story short of that is that he manages to avoid the worst consequences after the war. doesn't get thrown in jail, doesn't get executed, Spain is not attacked, and he keeps power until he dies in 1975. That's Franco. Before all this, during the Spanish Civil War, most of the Basque people found themselves on the side of the Republicans. And this is mostly because the Republicans were in real trouble against Franco. They needed help, and they eventually offered the Basques autonomy if they joined them in opposition to the fascists. Three provinces out of four in Basque Country said yes by wide margins. And politically, this was an unwise choice. Essentially, they were backing the loser. But they were offered the biggest possible prize at a time in history when the modern version of the Basque independence movement, or some people call it a separatist movement, had been kindled. You know, at this point, they're spelling things their own way. We talked about Barica with a C or a K. You know, they have their own flag. Basque pride is high. And how can you resist what might be a path to independence? How do you say no to the prospect of fulfilling that ancient dream? It's tantalizing. And to think about it now, it's almost heartbreaking when you know what happened next. A Basque government was installed in 1936, run by the PNV. Again, that's the Nationalist Party that John Rahm's father would be a part of later. Their basic ideology was, we are pro-worker, pro-democracy, pro-separation of church and state, but at the same time, we are socially conservative, we are heavily Catholic, and we are family-oriented. They ruled for less than a year. In March 1937, in the midst of the Spanish Civil War, Franco turned his attention to Basque Country, and he had the planning, and the airplanes, and the weaponry, and the money, and even the manpower of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy at his disposal. Meanwhile, the Basques were fighting with bolt-action rifles, in some cases with rocks. Franco was ruthless. He bombed one town, Durango, at 7.20 a.m. when he knew people would be at church. Civilian casualties seemed to have been a feature rather than a bug of his campaign. Refugees were flooding everywhere. England and France took on many Basque children. And Franco expected to win this campaign in three weeks. And in many ways, what happened next was the high point of the Basque resistance to what we think of as Spain. They fought for every inch. They took bombing and they took artillery bombardment. They were completely outmatched militarily, but they wouldn't budge until they had to. The Germans, advising Franco especially, were baffled by what was happening. Why was this so hard? Franco was getting frustrated, and the Basques were showing why Historically, they were so impossible to conquer. On April 26, 1937, Franco made the decision to bomb Guernica, this symbolic center of Basque identity. Remember, this is where the king's representative would come to the oak tree every year and reaffirm the Basque right to their fueros, to their self-rule. This place meant a lot to the Basques, and Franco's planes dropped bombs on the town, on civilians, they chased these civilians up the mountains, fired at them with machine guns from the planes, killed women and children with the help of the best war machine in the world at that moment, Nazi Germany. In three hours in Guernica, they killed an estimated 1,600 people out of a population of 7,000. And if you know about this today, it's because of the foreign journalists who were there to document it from the UK, from America. That's on one hand. And on the other, it's because the artist Pablo Picasso That year, when he was commissioned to paint a mural for the Spanish Pavilion at the World's Fair in Paris, he chose this as his subject, this devastation. And that painting was called Guernica. The effect of Guernica on the Basque people cannot be overstated. They held on, they fought for two more months against this modern war machine, what Franco thought would take three weeks eventually took three months. They surrendered in late August, and for months their people were rounded up, the nationalists especially, or anyone suspected of being a nationalist, and many were executed. When Franco took power, he outlawed the Basque language, outlawed their culture as much as he could, exiled or killed his enemies, and tried to do what nobody had ever been able to do historically, which is to crush the Basque way of life out of existence. And it was at this point that the Basques, if they wanted to learn the language, they had to do so secretly. You could be thrown in jail if you were caught speaking Basque in public. But if you've gathered anything up to this point, you probably know that this was a massive error on Franco's part. And it haunted him until the day he died. And the way it's going to haunt him for the most part is through the organization ETA. That's ETA. It stands for Euskadi Ta Askatsuna, which means Basque Homeland and Liberty. It was formed in the late 50s out of frustration because the PNV party was providing basically no opposition to Franco at that point. Ada was formed by students, and for a decade, the most they really did was to talk. There was a Marxist bent in their ideology. That should come as no surprise, because they're in opposition to the fascists that they loathed. And in 1968, they killed for the first time. The man they killed was a member of the Guardia Civil, that's the Spanish police force. And this was the start of what some people eventually called the longest-running war in Europe. There were assassinations by Eta, the crackdowns by Franco, car bombs, police torture, and back and forth it went. The biggest operation Eta ever pulled off involved Franco's chosen successor, an admiral named Luis Carrero Blanco. He was the president of the government. and They put a bomb in a tunnel below the street where his car passed every day. They detonated it at the perfect moment it blew up his car and him. Left this big crater in the road. And the irony here, if you want to look at it that way, is that while it didn't do anything for Basque freedom, it did clear the path for Spanish democracy. For those people in Franco's government who were waiting to take over once he died, basically for them, having this guy Blanco out of their way made things a lot smoother. So the Eta attack had at least the partial effect of ending Franco's legacy. Franco died in 1975 and Spain began transitioning to a constitutional monarchy. They were now ruled by Juan Carlos I, someone who everyone basically thought would follow in Franco's footsteps, but he did not. He had the support of the U.S., almost all of Western Europe. He helped pass a statute of autonomy for the Basque people in the 1978 Constitution. This, however, did not appease Ada, nor did offers of amnesty appease them, or even actual amnesty, which happened once in a while, The three deadliest years for Ada came between 1978 and 1980 after Juan Carlos took over. They had their sights set on total independence and thought maybe this was an opportunity. There were peace talks. There were setbacks. Ada lost public support gradually with time. They tried to stage attacks before the 92 Olympics in Barcelona, tried to assassinate Juan Carlos. They tried to kill the future prime minister. And in the meantime, they were using tactics like blackmailing or extorting money from their own people especially Basque businessmen. They called it a, quote, revolutionary tax, and they would levy that under threat of kidnapping or death. Between 1968 and 2010, with car bombs and gunfire and various other means, Ada killed 829 people. Their power waned considerably after 9-11, when anti-terrorist methods became much more sophisticated, and their support fell along with it. By 2009, 77% of Basques Said they didn't support them. In 2011, Ada declared a ceasefire. And in 2018, in a letter to the newspaper El Diario, they dissolved completely, ending Europe's longest war. And this would have been the world that John Rahm, his father, his grandfather, even his great grandfather occupied, you know, for the last 10, 20, 50, 100 years. It's interesting that there is very little to indicate their politics, the family, or their participation in any wars beyond the fact that Edorta Rahm, John's father, was part of that nationalist party. But that was and is extremely common. John Rahm, you can bet, is not going to say very much about that side of it for the same reason Roy McElroy won't discuss Northern Irish politics. It's too fresh, there's too much to lose. You know, as he said in that clip we played from him, he represents both the Basque Country and spain on the global stage but you can bet as a kid in Barica, while he was working his way toward becoming the best golfer in the world he felt it in his bones because how could you not he would have heard the stories of his people how they preceded the europeans remember this is someone who loves history he would have heard of guernica he probably knew someone in eta and if he didn't you can bet his father did Everything he does, everything he is, is influenced by the fact that he came from Ishqal area, the Basque country, the homeland. Whatever else describes John Rahm, he is the spiritual son of thousands of years of history, and he is the descendant of the greatest survivors who have ever lived. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. We use two songs for the music today, Tango Luna by Runa Dale and Queen of the Night by Andres Cantu. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out, too. Golf Digest Weekly podcast it's called The Loop. And there's a new podcast on golf instruction with Luke Curdineen that's called Golf IQ. Both of them are out now. You can subscribe to both. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great day.
1: Okay, guys, for those of you who live with all four seasons like me up here in the Northeast, golf season is finally upon us. We've got temperatures in the 70s. It's beautiful out. No more simulators. No more putting on the carpet We made it. And what tends to go hand-in-hand with golf season? Trying to get better each and every year. As you may or may not know, Golf Digest Schools is your home for our premium video golf lessons from some of the greats like Butch Harmon, David Ledbetter, and Michael Breed to the guys on tour, including the best player in the world, John Rahm, Scotty Scheffler, Max Homa, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, and many, many more. Whether you want to add yards off the tee, you want to cure your slice— You want to cure your hook. You want to stop three-putting. We've got over 800 video lessons, and we can guarantee you we've got the solutions for all of your faults. But wait, there's more. Sorry, had to do it Billy Mays style. We're offering 30% off with promo code MEMORIAL. That's all caps MEMORIAL. That offer ends Monday, May 29th. Go to schools.golfdigest.com and start improving your game today.